Welcome to the Inquiry Mind Podcast with me, Stanley Goldberg. Today, I'll be speaking with Ilana Redstone. She's an associate professor of sociology at the University of Illinois. Professor Redstone obtained her BA at the University of New Hampshire and her PhD in demography and sociology from the University of Pennsylvania. She has been at the University of Illinois since 2005 and teaches the highly popular class entitled Sociology of Political Polarization, Bigots and Snowflakes, and is the author of the new book, which I highly recommend, Unassailable Ideas, How Unwritten Rules in Social Media Shape Discourse in American Higher Education. We discuss all sorts of topics, especially how social media contributed to many of the problems we have today in academia and in society as, as, a, as a whole, cancel culture in numerous parts of our society, and the impact of self-censorship on younger generations. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to the audio version or on YouTube. Your support, as always, is greatly appreciated. This is also a huge milestone for me. This is episode number 20. I'm excited to share many more great conversations with all of you. But for now, thank you for your ongoing support. So now, without further delay, I bring you my conversation with Alana Redstone. Alana Redstone. Welcome to the Inquiry Mind podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. Uh, before we jump into your book that I have right here. No, oh, look at that. You do. Yes, I do. Unassailable Ideas. Uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, what you do, and how sure. you came to write this book? Sure. Um, so that's a, just to be, I need to hold it up quickly, but that's a co-authored book with um, John Villasenor, who's, yes, at UCLA. Um, and so I'll answer the, the first question first. Um, I'm on the faculty, I'm an associate professor in the sociology department at the University of Illinois. Um, and I also have a consulting company called Diverse Perspectives Consulting where I do work um, mostly outside of academia on related topics. Um, and I, my focus um, or my area is kind of in the space of communication across ideological divides. Um, viewpoint diversity, um, ideological diversity, all of those, all of the political polarization, all of those terms, I think none of them are great, but that's kind of where I am. I teach a course at the University of Illinois um, called Bigots and Snowflakes, so which is, um, which is great. Uh, I mean, oh, I think it's great. Hopefully the students <laughs> like it. <laughs> it's fun to teach. Um, and, um, and then I did a video series on some of the book called Beyond Bigots and Snowflakes, which is based on some of the material that I use in that course that was um, just to make it more widely available. So, and then the book, sorry, to get to your second question, the book um, came out of a series of conversations that John and I had been having and um, and just seemed like a natural, a natural way to sort of compile the, both the case studies and I think our shared concerns about what we're, what we're seeing in academia and with, it, with relation to academic, to discourse. Um, and I, you know, I would say that it is certainly the case that everything we say in that book really applies. I mean, the case studies largely 
not entirely, but most of them are related to higher education, but everything we say really applies to the discourse more broadly. So it's not contained to academia, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, and how did you come to get interested in uh, political uh, polarization and why did you decide to, to write about that? You know, so I'm just speaking for myself here. I don't want to speak for my co-author, but um, I came to this space really. So my background, I have a joint degree in demography and sociology from uh, from Penn from 2005. And so for the first part of my career, I, I and my dissertation and everything going back um, was on U.S. immigration. Um, and so and I did very, you know, sort of just. The, in the driest academic form, you know, writing papers and journals that nobody reads and, um, and, you know, and that was fine and that worked. And, and I think there was a point where I started to see, it became very clear to me that there was some, that the way we were talking and thinking about um, what seemed to me like complicated social problems um, that was really overly simplified. Um, and I think that it was, uh, the way I came into this, I mean, there's a, there's a longer version of this story, but the short version is that really from a place of just, this is not helpful. Like this is just this whole conversation about whether it's inequality or identity or racism or whatever, that it was just in a way, and the way that we were, you know, specifically to higher education, the way we were engaging with students was also, what I was seeing was just also not, not productive, not helpful. Um, so that's kind of where that was sort of, and then again, there are all kinds of tributaries in terms of that, where that, how that stream led to where it led, but that's, that's kind of the basic idea. Yeah. And, uh, obviously in the past few years, there have been books written on topics yeah. very similar to this. Uh, mm -hmm. one that comes to mind is the coddling of the American mind, mm -hmm. uh, Jonathan Haidt and mm -hmm. Greg Lukianoff. Uh, but in your book, you really stress that the issues have gone progressively worse due to social media. Mm -hmm. um, and even though, you know, stuff, maybe not cancel culture, but college campuses have get, been getting progressively worse since the sixties. Some people would argue. Mm -hmm. um, it's I don't really think we made that argument, but yeah, some people have made that yeah, argument. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's gotten rapidly worse in the, uh, since uh, social media became relevant. So mm -hmm. can you explain how social media caused a lot of the problems on college campuses? Yeah, I mean, I'm always trying, you know, as a social scientist, I'm always trying to be careful of the word cause, because um, oh, I think there's, you know, there's sort of feedback loops and everything else. But, um, but uh, you know, I think what we talk about in the book are direct and indirect effects of social media, where the direct effects are sort of like the literal, you know, somebody does a thing, they say a thing, or they do a study or whatever, and social media it gets lands on the wrong or the, the sort of wrong person's feed um and then the the direct effects are sort of the you know the calls for that the publication to be pulled or the person to be fired or, or whatever else or you know petitions that so those are sort of the direct effects that we talk about and then we also talk about indirect effects which are as which are um sort of the the broader climate that social media helps to prop up and in that in the book, we talk about three unwritten rules or three beliefs in particular. Um, the first of which is that 
Let's see if I can remember the order. <laughs> All differences in group outcomes are due to discrimination. Uh, discrimination. Actually, I think that was the second one, but it doesn't. The order doesn't matter. Um, the second is that any action. I think this was actually the first. Um, any action that's taken to undermine existing power structures is automatically deemed to be a good thing. And we're really careful. We try to be really careful in the book that we're not. That is not meant to be a defense of existing power structures. It's a more of an observation and a criticism that anything that you do to undermine is automatically sort of a reflexive response. Um, and then the third is the primacy of identity along the lines that people usually refer to identity, race, gender, gender expression, gender identity, sexual orientation, et cetera. Um, and so those are the three beliefs. And so we talk about, so the in, just is going back to your social media question. So the indirect effects sort of prop, prop the indirect effects of social media prop up those um, beliefs. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things that I, I completely agree with in your book, uh, I think it was in your introduction where you mentioned, even though this you're writing about college campuses for the most part, yeah, this should matter to everyone. Mm -hmm. And um, again, I'm going <laughs> to, I know every, everyone can read the book. Obviously it's a great book, yes, uh, but, but can you explain why it should matter to a person that really couldn't care less what goes on on college campuses? Well, I mean, the the most obvious reason is that what goes on, I mean, so there's, there's no, there are a number of reasons, but one of them is that what goes on in college campuses uh, doesn't stand college campuses, right? It doesn't, I mean, so like, I mean, and I mean that in the most literal sense, like there are students who graduate and, and go on, right? So in the very literal sense that it doesn't, you know, think so. And you, you can see that there are some, the same way that discourse is sort of broken down in, on campuses, you can see it. So this is why I started the consulting company. Um, you can see that that has also had an impact uh, in the workplace. Um, you know, so that's sort of a first order concern. I think there are other concerns about, you know, we talk about this a little bit in the book, but I mean, universities is a center for knowledge production, right? And so when you're talking about, um, when you're talking about the creation, and this is, you know, while this is changing to a certain extent, but this is certainly more relevant in general for the social sciences and the humanities, um, but not, not I mean, we talk about this in the book, we give some examples of how it's sort of been reaching other parts of um, the academy. Um, but, um, you know, that has implications, there are implications for how we grow knowledge. Um, and that is, you know, if you're concerned about discourse, and if you're concerned about some of these ideas, and that they're being they're not you're, they're not criticized in the way that they should be um that should be concerning um so those i mean those are two i would say two main reasons um and i, I guess there's a third reason which is that you know not only as centers for knowledge production but you know there again there's this feedback loop what happens on campuses particularly more prestigious more elite campuses whatever both shapes and is reflects and, and shapes and reflects what's going on in broader society. So, right, so you have, um, you know, so the fact that students are literally moving, they move out into the world, but, you know, there's always a spotlight on campuses. I mean, there has been for, I don't know, for certainly many decades, if not more, but there's, a, you know, there's a spotlight as um, training future leaders and training future um, entrepreneurs, et cetera. And, um, so yeah, so those are at least I would say three reasons, and there are probably more, but those that that gets you pretty far, I think. 
Yeah. And when writing this book, were you concerned at all about any pushback people might give to the book or um, have you, you know, received any kind of, you know, has it threatened your job in any way or, or anything like that? <laughs> I don't want to tempt fate by answering that question. <laughs> um, no, no, I mean, I, no, I don't think so. Like not at this point. I mean, you know, we've tried to be, you know, John and I in the book, like, we've certainly tried to be really careful in what we say. I mean, it's always a concern. I think anybody who is sort of moving in this space or thinking about these issues or th thinking out loud, thinking publicly about these issues, it's always a concern. I do think that there are ways to engage. I think that we do in the book. I think that John does in some of his other work. And I think that hopefully I do in some of my other work that is not kind of it's not, um, how would you say it? Um, it's not sort of, it's not as, prov I mean, it's provocative, but it's not sort of unnecessarily provocative. It's asking questions and it's trying to get people to think about things in a different way, or at least question the certainty with which they were thinking about things. Um, and it's not as, you know, it's, it's hopefully less aggressive, less confrontational, and so less threatening. Um, you know, because I think that one of the things that, I don't, I don't know how successful we were at this, but I think one of the things that has been important to both, you know, John and to me when we were writing the book was that to the extent possible, really wanting to engage with people who don't necessarily agree with us yet. So to not just preach to the choir. Right. And you mentioned before that you started a consulting company. What does mm -hmm. that work entail? Who do you cater to? Is it college campuses or is it, you know, private corporations? Yeah, I mean, it's mostly, you know, I would say it's mostly been um, private or private organizations that will contact me and um, either for um, sort of a DEI alternative um, program that I've developed or um, or a more targeted approach that deals specifically with um these issues sort of difficult kind of, so for example, I mean, there's an organization that I work with in DC that they wanted to be able to have sort of difficult, whatever you call it, and difficult conversations, uncomfortable conversations, whatever, sort of have these kinds of conversations. Um, and they didn't want, their preference was to not have me come in and do it, but they wanted me to sort of show them how to do it and sort of teach them to facilitate the conversations on their own. And so that's what I've been working with them for a little while now. And so that's, you know, so that would be the kind of thing that's what they wanted me to do. Alternatively, I can come in and, you know, do workshops and whatever. So that's what that looks like. But it's also could be, you know, could take a lot of different forms. Right. Without yeah. giving too many of your secrets away. Uh, if not really a corporation or anything, well, a person like that comes to you and says, you know, yeah. we want you to help us have these kind of uncomfortable conversations, let's call them yeah. um, in the workplace. How does that how do you facilitate that? How does that work? Yeah. So part of it is, you mean, if I'm teaching them to like, yes, yeah, to yeah. facilitate it or doing it or leading the discussion. I mean, there's a lot of overlap there. So, yeah. I mean, I more facilitate. There, How does yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, so usually what, and this would be true for anyone facilitating this kind of conversation. Usually you're going to have two people in your audience. You're going to have two types of people in your audience. One is people who are sort of like, Oh, thank God. I need to think, you know, I need to sort of, this is a welcome, this is a breath of fresh air. Like I need to kind of 
think through this out loud and here's someone who can sort of put words to my thoughts or some of my concerns, hopefully. Um, and then you're going to have some, and there's not, I'm oversimplifying when I say two groups, but, um, you know, and then the other might be something like, well, what do you, what is exactly is the problem that you're trying to solve, right? Like you're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist or, you know, or, you know, this is a Trojan horse sort of scenario. Um, and so you, and in any group, you're probably dealing with, with, you know, with some exceptions, I guess, depending on the context, you're probably dealing with both types of people. So part of what I think, it, you know, is the best way to start is to get everybody on board with a shared goal, I think can be really helpful, right? Sort of, and, and that can be something as simple as, um, you know, what kind of climate do you want to create? What do you, what kind of, you know, you go into talking to an organization or, you know, what do you want to create? And so the, the more you can do this, I think with people at different places in the hierarchy, the more buy-in you'll get, um, which is, you know, always a good thing. Um, and so, you know, what kind of climate do you want to create? And if you think that, like, let's say somebody says, you know, we want to make sure that members of marginalized groups never feel offended. We don't want, we don't want microaggressions and we want them to not feel offended ever. Um, okay, well, how you, right? So, I mean, that, I've never had anyone actually say that, but but just to sort of, as a, you know, a sort of um, extreme case, that has a certain set of implications in terms of how you're going to be able to communicate with one another. That's the, that's the you know, intent doesn't matter. It's only impact, um, you know, and if you go down that road, you will, you are defining your culture by saying that the most sensitive person in the room, in the space, is going to define what's acceptable. And so, one example that I've that I've come across with that is, you know, there are people who I worked with an organization once where there are people in the organization who very sincerely felt that the word "healthy" was um, was offensive, and so they felt that um, they felt that it was sort of normative and exclusive to different body types. Um, to describe people as healthy. And then they felt that in terms of using it to describe diets and lifestyles, that it was, again, normative in a way that was um, that was judgmental, that was inappropriate. I don't, I don't want to put words in their mouth. They were sincere in their concerns. I don't think they were making it up. But, you know, if you defined your organization as one that says, we don't want anyone to feel offended ever. Okay, so now you've, now you've set the table so that people can no longer say the word healthy, for example. Right. I mean, how, that's it. Like if you have some group who's saying this is offensive, um, then. And so now most people sort of hear that and they're like, that seems like it's going a little too far um, most of the time. And so and so then, you know, but going back to the your question, sort of if you're setting this goal, let's say, for example, that instead of that goal, maybe the goal is. We want a climate where there's open communication, where innovation can thrive. OK, that's a different goal. That's a, that's a reasonable goal. And so then you can, as you go through this kind of workshop and leading these kinds of conversations, you can orient back towards that goal, right? And you can say, well, okay, we're gonna have this scenario. You have, you know, this interaction between two members of two different races and and was is it racism? Is it not racism? And how do you wanna to respond to the person? Or, or, you know, somebody in a staff meeting says, you know, I think the most qualified person should get the job. And somebody else says, uh, you know, I think that's offensive. You're denying the barriers and the sort of disadvantage that members of marginalized groups have faced. And how do you want to respond to it? Well, if your goal is sort of this open communication and innovation, that has a very specific 
there's a very specific prescription for how you're going to how you're going to respond to that. Um, and so I think talking through a lot of that and then. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm sorry, I don't know if I answered your question. That's sort of the starting point. And then there's and then it goes a lot further in terms of how can you engage on some of these topics and the sort of most heated ones tend to be issues around, you know, again, racism, intent, the role of intent, if, if people, you know, is there a role of intent? And if so, what should it be? Um, identity more generally, what does it mean for something to be fair? Um, leaning into versus away from identity or what are the limits to that? Um, all of those things are topics that um, that I would talk about. I mean, you know, yeah. and then specific to the organization. Yeah. Uh, the, the work sounds fascinating because one of the most common complaints I hear from people that are uh, maybe not even right-leaning, it's just people yeah. that have different opinions right. on a matter. There's, there's the, and there's always in an uh, office environment, especially in the big, in big companies, there's the office orthodoxy, mm -hmm. right? So like things that could be said without much pushback. And mm -hmm. before, you know, Trump was no longer president, what I would commonly hear in the office would be, for example, if somebody criticized Trump's policies or called him a racist, a bigot, whatever, go down the line, nobody would say anything, right? Mm -hmm. You can't, there's no risk of getting fired for saying something like that. Right. But then I always played that situation in my head. I'm like, well, how about if somebody said, well, I think his policy, policy X is actually not a bad idea. Um, he has a point there, something like that. Mm -hmm. That person is putting their neck out on the line to say that and creating a kind of a healthy environment where people could have that discourse if they wanted to at work and not mm -hmm. feel afraid mm -hmm. to lose their jobs. And I think you need that healthy discourse in order, in order to feel like, you know what, I'm really not taking that big of a risk because it's really not that big of a risk. You're just speaking your mind. Mm -hmm. no. Yeah. I mean, you could take it even further than that. You could say, you know, well, you know, before he was, again, while he was still in office, you know, if Trump says it's raining, like, and you say, look, Trump said it's raining, you know, like, is it, and it's actually raining outside, you know, are you like, where, so where do you, yeah. So, I mean, that's a little bit of a silly example, but, but, you know, yeah, how do you how do you have those conversations? I mean, it, it matters because I mean, you know, the reality is, and this is sometimes people will ask. I did a webinar here at the University of Illinois a few weeks ago, and one of the questions was about, you know, why should corporations, you know, care? Why should corporations care about this? And and one of the reasons, one of them is sort of a you know kind of a moral imperative to to have for open discourse, but the other is that you know. We just had an election where there are 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump and 81 million people who voted for Joe Biden. And so if you think that this variation or, you know, and this and again, what we're talking about, it's not, as you indicated, it's not just at how it breaks down at the ballot box. It's even within people on the left in particular. Um, you know, this is going on anyway. Right. Like if it's you can pretend it's not there, but it's going on anyway. And so to the extent that you are not kind of harnessing people's intellectual capital, their human capital in the way that you, in, in the most efficient way, in the most productive way, because they have these other concerns about, you know, along the lines of what you're saying or, or related, that's not good from sort of a, um, you know, from sort of a bottom line kind of perspective. So, you know, there's separate, if the moral argument is not compelling, <laughs> Then you know you can take this other argument over here, which is more of a you know a sort of 
workplace satisfaction, profit oriented market, uh, excuse me, argument. Yeah, one of the, um, you, you mentioned it before where you said that uh, why people should be concerned about this issue is because once they're out of college, they go, into, yeah. these people go into the workplace. And uh, one of your chapters in your book is about uh, cancel culture's role in publishing. Right. And publishing, this is more of academic. You give uh, two, I think, I think it's two case studies. Correct me if I'm wrong. Two case studies of people writing academic papers that are not that controversial. One of them, I think at Brown University, I forget her name. I'm sorry. But um, Lisa Littman. Yeah, no, Lisa, Lisa, is that her name? Yes. Am I mixing up? Hold on. I'm going to look it up while you're on the call. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and Brown University actually put out a press release praising her. Yes, before they, before the, before they had to revoke right. that statement, right? Uh, and this is this is one of those clear cut examples where this extends to the real publishing world, where it's the I mean the the big publishing companies, yeah, where yeah. you see situations in the last two years, like Woody Woody Allen's book at Hachette being canceled. Um, they all find other publishers. Don't get me wrong, and they still sell a lot of copies. Sure, but it, it's the whole culture of people walking out on ideas that are not supposed to be published mm -hmm. when that's the whole point of publishing right? right you you don't want you know just one political ideology being published we want diverse points of view and there's a there's a, a yearning for it and there's clearly a readership that people right. want to read these books and they're right. interested about these subjects so right. and i'm sorry if i'm going on a little bit of a no, no, rant you're fine, you're fine i uh i went one time I had a class in college. I'm not going to name the class, but it was uh, it was one of those like black studies, Latino studies kind of classes. It was required by my university and I took it. Uh, the professor liked me, but there was this uh, time during the class where we would talk about something, I guess, touchy, like a touchy subject such as race or something. And I mentioned to the professor, I'm like, you know, if in private, obviously. And I think if you want to teach this class in a somewhat balanced way, right, you should teach, you could teach the Ibrahim X uh, candy, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Robin D'Angelo type books, if you want, that's, I have I actually have no problem with that, right. but there has to be a, a balancing act that you have to play. Right. So, because I think a lot of, especially young people, they have this uh, well, I'm I'm one of those young people, but I think a lot of young people read a book about race and they think this is it. Like this is the book. Right. There's nobody that can challenge them. Right. But I said I told the professor back then that if you want to balance it, read some Thomas Sowell. Let's read Thomas Sowell in class. Why right. not? Right. Um, and I think these labels of conservative liberal are so out of whack because mm -hmm. I don't consider Ibrahim Kendi a liberal. And I don't consider really Tom, I mean, Thomas Sowell is probably a conservative, but his research is not, he's a researcher. He's not mm -hmm. there to tell you that his conservative way of life is better than yours. Mm -hmm. He's just trying to analyze data. Mm -hmm. And we have to create this environment in our schools and jobs and workplaces, I'm sorry, that kind of has this kind of debate and people have to have different perspectives or else they're going to go into the world and this is what we're going to keep getting. We're going right. to get, keep getting more, uh, how to, uh, how to be an anti-racist and less of, uh, 
I'm trying to find a different book about race. Um, maybe like one of like John McWhorter's book or, mm-hmm. or listening to Glenn Lowry's podcast, something with a diverse point of view, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and one of the things I noticed in school commonly, and again, you alluded to, you, you write on, write in your book is the idea of self-censorship, mm-hmm. self-censorship. I'm sorry. Um, how, what harm does it do when young people have to self-censor themselves and how does that extend to beyond their college experiences? Yeah. I mean, why well, I should think you can go further than the self-censorship issue, but you know, the self-censorship, I mean, so on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, we all self-censor, right? We self-censor all the time. Like no one just, you know, other than, you know, little children, we don't just walk around sort of blurting out whatever is on our minds. Um, certainly nobody who wants to maintain any relationships um, does that, right? So you could say, well, we all self-censor to a certain degree. And that's true. So there's the, um, I'm just writing myself a note to not forget, um, to come back to. Um, so there's the, there's the question, so that's true, right? Of course, self-censorship plays an important role in how we interact with one another. Um, so that's, so even with that being true though, the problem is when that self-censorship starts to circle essentially an entire ideological orientation and basically says that, you know, everything inside this circle that's consistent with this particular ideology is acceptable. And then, you know, we could draw another ring out here that says everything on the outside of this is unacceptable. And you could put your, you know, your racial epithets and slurs and all this stuff out here. And then in between the two, in the space in between the two, sits non, what are sort of, you know, maybe non-progressive or non, you know, inconsistent ideologies or, or or questions or opinions that don't fit in that smaller center circle. And now you've labeled those sort of through social norms. We've said, these are not really, things that you should say. And so, you know, I've asked the this with students, like, and it's fairly obvious when you ask the question, you say, if you do that, what's gonna happen? And the obvious answer is, well, resentment. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole separate question about whether, and I don't know that there's, it's hard, it's something that's a little bit hard to study empirically, but there's also, so there's a broader question about, so there's resentment. And then you could say, well, does that resentment actually lead people to sort of follow the breadcrumbs and end up being more extreme than they would have otherwise been in their beliefs, right? Like if I have this opinion, I think that, I think that, you know, I'm just going to channel an argument here. You know, I think that race-based college admissions is a terrible idea and it's unfair. And people are telling me either explicitly or sort of through any sort of communication, whether it's nonverbal or whatever, that this is unacceptable to say, I may, I don't know. Again, this is a question. I don't know if there's empirical evidence on this, but it would be reasonable to think that I might then seek out people who don't penalize me for that, who don't judge me for it. And what happens then if those people have other extreme ideas, right? So maybe they have other extreme ideas that I didn't necessarily hold. Do I start to then, right? So then this is, I mean, and I know there are people who've written on this, but so that would be another concern. And then, so the resentment plus the sort of, you know, where does it lead kind of question. And then the other point I would say is that, you know, self-censorship, there have been studies about self-censorship. I know that, you know, the Campus Expression Survey from Heterodox Academy, you know, there's certainly, they certainly show evidence of self-censorship. Um, but I would argue that, and that the problem is even worse in the sense that 
I can imagine, and I'm sure this is not just living in my imagination, that there are classrooms where nobody feels like they're self-censoring, right? Where people, you know, whether it's a class and they're talking about, say, race, or they're talking about privilege, or which privilege is usually usually part of a conversation about inequality, loosely sort of one way or another tied to inequality. Um, And they're having a conversation and no one in that classroom feels like they're self-censoring. And I would argue that there's still a problem, even if there's not a single person who feels like they're self-censoring for the following reason, which is that if you ask students and you say, um, you know, I'll just stick with the white privilege example. If you ask them and you say, you know, what are the benefits what are the benefits of an idea like white privilege, right? Like, how does it help us? I mean, this is social science. Like, how should, should these are theories and ideas, and how should how do they help us understand the world? Do they, you know, these are, are they you know, all of that's all of those, you know, are they falsifiable? Are they unfalsifiable? Um, how does an idea like white privilege help us? What are the benefits of this idea? Like, what does it help? And they'll tell you, you know, they'll say things like, well, it helps us recognize. It helps us recognize you know, the role of unearned advantage, right? Which, and, or it helps us recognize the way that race continues to be a barrier in everyday life, Um, you know, which seem like thoughtful responses. Um, And then if you ask them and you say, you know, why might somebody have concerns about this topic or the way it's, sorry, this term or the way it's used or have concerns about it or object to it, you know, depending on how strongly you want to phrase the question. And, the only thing that usually they can't, usually they have nothing to say. The only response that they'll sometimes have, in, in my experience, I don't have data on this, in my, in, my, in my experience, is, you know, well, people who want to deny the existence of racism might have, an, might have an issue with this concept. And so now you've set up, and you talk about how students don't say students. So now you've set up this dynamic where anybody who's not on board, <laughs> sort of with a full-throated endorsement of the idea that we should be talking about this and focusing on it all the time, is the main you know, factor when we think about inequality is racist, right? We've now set it up so that there is no other reason why anyone could have a question, concern, whatever about this. And, and there's no discussion about the fact that this is actually really hard. Like, and here's why, and it's hard because they're kind of right. On, on the one hand, they're right in the sense that the majority of people, or perhaps all, who are driven by racial animus, are probably going to be the ones who say white privilege, you know, and are totally dismissive of the idea. That's probably a true statement. To go from there to say that anybody who has concerns about this term, the way it's used, whatever, is therefore, that is evidence that they are driven by racial animus, is a totally unfounded statement. And we have not, we have continually, we in higher education have continually failed to make that distinction over and over and over again, just to use that. And you could do that, you could do that exercise with a number of other topics. You could do it with colorblind racism, you know, like I said, white privilege, you could, right? So there's, you could go down the line. Um, and that's, that is damage. And so going back to your point, like that could happen even without a single person feeling like they're self-censoring, if that makes any sense. Because maybe you just get a classroom where everyone's going, yeah, yeah, and I get it, right? Like, uh, yeah, no, of course, that makes total sense. No one's self-censoring. You still have a problem. Right, right. That's a good point. Sorry, I'm trying to... Pro- that. That's actually... Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, 
I mean, so it's sort of what it's one of the reasons why, you know, I mean, there there was a time a couple of years ago, I mean, less so because of partly because of COVID, but and that everything shut down, but where people would focus on, I mean, I'm very, I believe me, I like data and I, I'm a big supporter of data and empirical research, but, you know, I think there's a, there's a way in this space where you, where there, you can, the data matter, but they don't tell the whole story in the sense that if all you want to focus on are the, you know, the percentage of students who self-center, is it going up or is it going down? Is it, you know, that matters, but it's not the whole story in the sense that can soon, again, let's go back to the question that I asked in the beginning. Can they answer that question? Can they answer the question of, can they have that conversation about why might somebody have concerns about this concept in addition to what is a motivation other than racism? Yes, racism is on that list. What else is on that list in terms of why they might have concerns about it? Um, and what should we do about the fact that if all you know about someone is that they aren't really on board with the, you know, the idea of sort of apologizing for their privilege and, you know, the whole sort of thing, if that's all you know, you can't tell the difference if they're taking that position because it's driven by, because they're coming from a place of racial animus or because they have these principled concerns over here because we've never talked about those. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's, um, that is, you know, that, that may escape the metrics. I mean, the other metric I was going to say a couple of years ago, it was where I started about, you know, that's sort of less relevant because of COVID is, you know, disinvitations and shoutdowns and things like that. Those matter too. Um, you know, but they're not the whole story. They're sort of, so to me, those are sort of, both of those would be downstream effects, both meaning the second one being self-censorship. Those are downstream effects of this kind of at the mouth of the river. How do we think and talk about controversial and sensitive topics? Um, and so that's kind of, that's the space that, that I'm trying to work in. But I do think that the, I mean, I'm not saying, I think the metrics matter as well. I just don't think they tell the whole story. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, one of the things when preparing for this interview, I saw your uh, the clips of uh, your class. Right, it's like a, I guess it's like a summary of what you teach. In these, oh, the, the, yeah. the animated videos. That's the yes. Beyond Dates and Snowflakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Those are um, fun to make. Yeah. <laughs> so, can you explain uh, what you teach? Um, you you mentioned it before. Um, what your class is like? Is it a big class, small class? Uh, is it open dialogue kind of, or are there people that, you know, um, have been offended by some of the things that go on in the class? And how does it tie into your book? Uh, yours and uh, John. John uh, yeah. Phil, Phil, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay. So the class, I mean, the class is, I mean, you can do a lot in the class. I can, I speak for myself. I can do a lot in the class because it's, you know, it's um, 15 weeks, right? So it's, um, you know, this, we actually, I just taught it for the third time this spring. So, you know, that class was whatever, 80 minutes um, twice a week. So 160 minutes a week for 15 weeks. And you can do a lot. Um, and you can talk about a lot of things. So one of the things that I would usually do is and they had different readings and things, um, you know, they read, I'm trying to remember, they read some of Jonathan, some of uh, The Righteous Mind, they read some of Enlightenment Now, they read some Shelby Steele, um, gosh, there were a number of articles and things they read, oh, they read Christian Smith's uh, The Sacred Project of American Sociology, that's because it's a sociology class, no. so you have to have a little bit of sociology in it, so anyway, so they read that book. 
Um, gosh, without pulling up the syllabus, I can't remember what else is on the reading list. Um, but we would talk about the readings. We would talk about, we would talk a lot about kind of moral questions. I would always start the class with just opening up the floor, like opening up the conversation to, you know, what is, what do you want to talk about? What's going on out there in the world that makes you think of this class? And so um, that was, that was pretty much how every class would start, would start. Um, and that's always, you know, that was always interesting in terms of hearing about what caught people's attention or what they were thinking about or questions that they had. Um, so, you know, so yeah, so then we, and then we talk about the, and again, the moral issues, you know, part of it is getting them to, part of it is really sort of a long exploration of moral complexity. I mean, that's really what you're talking about in this space. These are moral questions. These are sort of intuitive and moral questions. And what we've lost is the ability to hold multiple perspectives on equal moral footing. Um, and that's not a good place to be. And so that's kind of, I don't, that's not explicitly written into the syllabus, but that's, um, that's a lot of what it orients the course. Um, you know, it's very much discussion oriented. I think there were, I think there were 31 students enrolled this semester. Um, I'd be happy to teach it to more. Um, that was, that was, it doesn't meet a gen ed requirement. Um, it's, so it's just an elective. Um, so yeah, so there were 31 students. I, you know, there's, I do think on, there are some benefits to teaching online. Um, that's true in the sense that some students feel comfortable speaking who don't otherwise speak. I, my personal feeling is that it's a net disadvantage, particularly for these topics, these kinds of conversations. Um, I think there's, I think it's harder to teach online. Um, so I'll look forward to, you know, teaching it in person again in the spring of next year. Um, so yeah, it is, sorry, it's discussion oriented. I have, in general, I, there has been, I would say in the three th three times I've taught it, there was, I've had one student once who had a concern about something. Um, and she, yeah, it, we ended up kind of working it out. But um, other than that, I've not had, sorry, I've not had an issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, to your point about Zoom classes, I, I, I listened to a, a podcast with John McWhorter recently, and mm -hmm. he said, Something very similar, uh, teaching from uh, teaching on Zoom has, I, I think he said like one benefit, like one real benefit, and that's uh, there's a there's a chat box on the side, yeah. and there's some really good discussions, and people are are more willing and more confident to ask questions right. in that yeah. chat box. But other than that, I would imagine a class like that, a class like uh, John McWhorter's, mm -hmm. I would. I would love to take in person rather than, yeah. you know, I'd love to take his class in person. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So where do you see the future of academia? So maybe in the, in the, in the long run, this, it's a difficult question because, yeah. but I think it's very central to your book because you point out these different factors, for example, people of different, uh, uh, standing, for example, adjuncts, you have full-time professors and right. you have, uh, uh, people that are on the tenure track. So adjuncts are more incentivized, I guess, to shut their mouths and, and say nothing because, right. because, you know, they could lose their jobs and that's, that's it. Um, right. I, I think the people that I've heard mostly talk about these issues are tenured professors because right. they're almost untouchable. 
almost. Almost. <laughs> That's why I said almost. <laughs> yeah. There's always a way. Uh, but yeah. So what do you see? Do you, is it going in a positive direction and negative direction? I don't know. I guess I don't know at this point. I mean, I think that, you know, I guess there's, so there's different ways you can think about that question, you know, are you evaluating sort of at the individual level, like sort of at the classroom level? Am I able to, am I able to connect with my students versus at the, you know, the administrative level, the campus level, that's pretty slow to change, I think. Um, so, you know, in terms of my own engagements, I think that I, I find them largely satisfying. And I mean, I wouldn't, again, I think some people, as you might expect, I'm sure some people come through, for example, that my, the Bigots and Snowflakes class. And I think for some people, it's, it's extraordinarily eye-opening. They're just like, it's transformative. I don't think everyone has a transformative experience who, you know, comes through my class, um, but some do. And um, so on that level, but, you know, that's not something, that's not the scale at which you need to really make change. Um, I think that, I think that the pro the, the problem is this sort of this treating, treating, again, sort of a set of ideas as though they're factual rather than what they are, which is really just a set of ideas and theories that's problematic. And you have instructors and students who are, who sort of, whether they realize that they're doing it or not, that is essentially what the way that information is being communicated and, and discussed. And so that's, that's really hard to kind of counter. So, you know, when you think, I think that the future, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of work being done by different organizations who are concerned. I will say that as a general rule, I think these bans that are people are that different states are talking about, whether it's in K through 12 or higher education or whatever, I think they're, I think it's a terrible idea. Uh, can um, you, sorry, uh, can you elaborate on that? What, what are the bans? Well, like, so there's, I mean, I, different states have sort of, um, you know, introduced legislation to ban, for example, um, critical race theory or sort of ideology around, you know, the 1619 project or, or what, I don't know if you know what these are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I don't, I think that these top-down sort of legislative bans are just, I mean, they're censorious, but they're, they're also just, they're just a bad idea. Like they're just, they are not going to get you what you, where you want to be. Um, and so that's, so I don't think, but it's easy, of course, it's easy to say, no, don't do that thing over here. And then, but you know, the the key is, can you come up with something better? Um, yeah. If you don't mind, um, yeah. I want to ask a follow-up question on that. Um, I've heard these proposals uh, yeah. to, to, to ban, I think in Florida, they're, they're going through with it. To yeah, there have been a number of states that have sort of yeah. kicked them around, and, but yeah. Um, obviously, it's easy to see for some people why it's a good idea, because they see it as, uh, you know, getting rid of bad ideas on college campuses. But uh, how do you... I guess the the way you combat um, bad, I mean, bad ideas is with, you know, good ideas. But how do you incentivize that in, on college campuses? Well, this is the problem, right? So, or this is one of the problems. But I mean, and I don't even, I wouldn't even, I'm not sure I would, you know, this sort of war of ideas. I don't like, I'm not thrilled with the metaphor. The you didn't say that, but it's, 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 it's uh, I don't know. It's, I don't like, I don't, I don't like the metaphor, but um, even though it's, it has some there, you know, there are some appropriate comparisons there. Um, I think that, 
I think, again, so I would come back to, again, I think that this material should be, you know, whether it's critical race theory, colorblind racism, white privilege, whatever. Yes, have at it, teach this stuff. Like it should be taught. Like I, it's for me, again, my perspective, yes, teach it. Stop teaching it as though it is the only sort of morally legitimate way to understand the world. I mean, stop it. Like this is not, this is not, it's not, you know, it's not helpful. It's not, well, it's not correct. And it's also, it's just not helpful. It's, I mean, it's counter, it's quite, it's quite to the contrary, it's counterproductive. And so, you know, the incentives point that you raised is an important point. Like it is, how do you get universities and higher education more generally, and also K through 12 or, uh, education, how do you get them to sort of see that how do you, what is the incentive? And so like, you know, you, here's an example, you could contrast it with, for example, a corporation where there's a bottom line, like there's a profit margin, there's a, you know, whatever, like we need to get all the ships pointed in the same direction because we need to make, I'm going to mix all kinds of, met, all kinds of metaphors here. Um, we need to make more widgets and we need to, you know, we need to increase our profit margin and whatever. And so we need people to be able to communicate with one another on all kinds of topics. And you could talk about how how come all of these topics are now in the workplace? That's a sort of a separate point. Um, but there's a there's an incentive there that everybody sort of needs to, if you can lean into that incentive, it's easier in a corporate environment in some ways than um, in higher education. Higher education has been really busy sort of trying to be all things to all people and kind of failing. Um, and so, and at the end of the day, you're always going to have choices, right? Like, so, you know, again, imagine the argument, or I'm sorry, not the argument, but if you want to channel the statement, you know, I think that trans women should not be allowed to compete in women's category sports. Is that an opinion or is that a, on a sort of unsettled question, or is that a threat to the trans community? And you can't have it both ways. Like you can, you're going to have to sort of, meaning institutions of higher education sort of, and I think that they have largely failed at that. Now, could they do better? Could they turn things around? But of course they could. Um, the question of incentives matters. I think the incentive of profit and sort of bottom line largely won't land with higher education. I mean, yes, there's, there's sort of donors and things like that, but um, can you ring the bell of the moral imperative? Maybe. Um, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's space there. Um, you know, that's certainly what I've tried to do in my own work, but you know, it's, it's like, you know, just one person sort of doing, doing my thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I would hope that there are sort of organizations that are continuing to do this work and that there are people who will continue to ask questions and, um, I don't know. I guess it's hard to say. It's hard to know where. I know there are people out there who are just like, I wash my hands of higher education. It's just, it's a lost cause and I give up and, you know, it's not even worth it. Um, I hope that's not true. I, I don't, I mean, I don't feel that in, I don't feel that way at this point. Um, so yeah, I mean, hopefully that's not the case. Yeah, I, that's actually a really the, the the point about teaching critical race theory and not banning it. And same thing with uh, the 1619 project. Um, I think most of the people that talk about these issues have not actually don't even know what they're talking about. Not 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 in a condescending way, but in a like they they've never read one of the essays in the 1619 project. Yeah, I'm sure you're uh, right. 
Um, I actually, one time I, I, I was told that I shouldn't like the 1619 project. So I sat down and read the entire, all the essays in the 1619. Oh, yeah. Um, it was, a. I decided to torture myself a little bit. Okay. Um, and I, some of them had decent points. I, I'm not saying everything is baseless. Like there are some yeah. credible people that wrote some credible things. I think they had, all of them had that one leap of faith that, that, or, uh, I, they jump to conclusions a little too quickly for my liking, but you know, I, I agree with you. There's a, there's a clip on, on Brett Stevens, who's a New York times columnist uh, on Bill Maher. And he said, you know, and this is common sense in my opinion, but he said, there's a difference. He goes, when I was growing up, I was taught Marxism. He goes, but there's a difference between teaching Marxism and teaching from a Marxist perspective. And I think that's the same thing that you're seeing with critical no, race theory yeah. and, and why we like people are so quick to want to ban these things because they don't want people to teach from a Marxist perspective. So it's easier to just ban Marxism teaching. Mm-hmm. I'm giving a, a hypothetical, obviously, but um, that's actually no, a good I point. Think you could even, I would, I'm even willing to be more relaxed about it than that. Have, go teach from a critical race theory perspective. I, I would even say do it, but just recognize and make sure that you are being clear that this is a perspective. It is a perspective. It is not sort of, you know, written in stone somewhere. I mean, it's, you know, or whatever your biblical reference is. Like, it's just so, yeah. That's I think the problem, sorry, but I think the problem, maybe the, this is my opinion, but there's, yeah. a, pro- there's a problem with that because um, they could teach it, but it's very hard. It's almost like watching the O'Reilly factor, right? Like he's saying, he's not saying he's talk radio. He's not saying his news, but I feel like a lot of people take it as news, whatever he says. Same thing applies to all the channels, but I'm saying, I just thought of one example. So it's like people could, could twist it in, in very weird ways where they say, mm-hmm. oh, I'm teaching from a critical race theory perspective. It's not the only perspective, but that's the only way I'm right. going to teach oh, it. Absolutely. Yes, you can literally you can pay lip service right. to this whole idea. Like you could you would absolutely. This is why I have like this is one of the problems, right? You could say, yeah, I, yes, I'm. This is critical race theory. It is one of the uh, one of one way to understand race relations in the United States. Um, but you know the other way, you know, people who don't sort of see things this way, they're usually not recognizing the full, you know, breadth and depth of racism in this country. Right. Now you've just dismissed. Now you've now you've had a very shallow conversation, and you've just dismissed. Yes, you've engaged different viewpoints, right? You've acknowledged that it is one way, but you've complete from a moral standpoint, from the standpoint of equal moral footing, you have just tossed everything else out the window. Right. So there's the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, sort of. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. Um, obviously, in the interest of time, yeah, uh, I'm gonna s- combine my last two questions that I ask of every guest okay. into into one order. Uh, answer it in whatever order you please. Uh, the first one is, what gives you hope for the future? If you have any hope, I've had a guest that had no hope. Um, and oh, then, and yeah, it is. And then. What are five books that you would recommend on any topic, fiction or nonfiction, to anybody? It doesn't have to be your favorite books. It's just something you would recommend. Okay. Um, I do have hope. I mean, I think that there's, I mean, I have hope from interactions that I have with people. And 
Um, you know, and I think that people have by and large, a lot of shared concerns. I mean, I don't, I do think that I do have hope, um, you know, I, from interactions with students and from interactions with other people. And um, I think that there's a lot, but I think there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and so, but I do, I do, I haven't totally lost hope. Um, in terms of books, oh gosh. Um, gets everyone. Really, I'm gets terrible it. at this because I can only think of the one that I'm reading now, which is The Emperor of All Maladies. Oh, great um, book. Which, yeah, it's really good. So, I mean, it's about cancer. So, yeah, but I was still reading yesterday about yeah. Siddhartha Mukherjee. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, but it is such an interesting book. Um, I do think that, you know, on this, um, on this, I've also been listening to Where the Crawdads Sing, which my sister recommended, which is, um, which is, if you're for fiction readers, it was, it's also a good book. Um, I would say, I mean, I, I am a fan of The Righteous Mind. Um, I would say A Conflict of Visions is high up there. Thomas Sowell. Um, right? Sorry? Was that Thomas Sowell? Conflict yeah, of yeah, that's Thomas yeah. Sowell's. Yeah, I mean, Discrimination and Disparities is another one of his books. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of thin volume. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I know that I had students who liked Factfulness, which is by Hans Rosling. Um, I had, I had mm -hmm. students in the class last semester who really liked that book. I think, you know, Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now, Better Angels of Our Nature. Um, those are all great books on these, on these topics. Um, you know, and then there, for people who don't want to commit to books, there are a ton of just articles. Like if you just start reading, you know, some of read, you know, read John McCorder's books, read, or, I'm sorry, articles, read stuff that Glenn Lowry's written, Andrew Sullivan, you know, Barry Weiss, like, you know, read some of the, read some of the other work that's out there if you don't feel like committing fully to a book. Um, yeah. yeah. So those are a couple of thoughts. Great. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And yeah, thanks so much for me. having me. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Yep.